This is the Banker's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring investment trends, solutions, and business issues relevant in today's private equity and finance industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner Jeff Cockrell as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Thank you for joining another episode of the Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, partner at McGuire Woods. In the Corner Series, we bring together thought leaders and deal makers in the intersection of healthcare and private equity and talk about some of the more interesting sectors and uh, new dynamics that are occurring in healthcare investing by private equity funds. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by our good friends at Provident Healthcare Partners. Uh, Rebecca Leba and Eric Major are going to join us in a discussion of kind of investing in cardiology, uh, which has been a very hot area for investment over the last 12 or so months. Rebecca, let me uh, flip it over to you to introduce Provident and yourself, and then Eric will love to get an intro from you as well. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on. My name is Rebecca Leba. I have been investment banking for about 26 years and been doing healthcare investment banking with Provident for almost 25 years now. We are a middle market investment bank focusing on the healthcare sector. We have offices located in Boston, New York, and then I'm actually in Las Vegas. Eric, maybe give yourself uh, an introduction and we'll jump into some questions. I'm Eric Majors. I'm a managing director with Provident. I've been here about 11 years, uh, sit in our Manhattan office and focus a lot of my work within the physician practice space, including cardiology. So looking forward to uh, sharing some of, our, some of our thoughts today. So historically, I have not seen a ton of deals in cardiology over the last five plus years. Recently, that has all dramatically changed. Um, historically, the acquisition of uh, uh, provider practices was solely uh, within the domain of health systems and hospitals. Eric, do you want to give a little bit of a summary of kind of why that might have been the case and what has changed? Sure. I think, you know, in cardiology, obviously the, the consolidation, to your point, has really been led by the systems over the last, you know, 10 plus years. And I think a lot of that came down to practices we're dealing with certain headwinds within the space, whether it's predominantly reimbursement and other kind of challenges that these groups have been running into, regulatory in nature as well. Cardiology practices sort of had two options. They could either remain independent, you know, continue to grow and, and try to merge with other groups in, in order to get some economies of scale and survive some of the reimbursement challenges they ran into, or they could potentially join a health system, you know, sell their, their equity, become an employed uh, doctor, or maybe even align with them through other creative structures like PSAs. I think that route ended up being an attractive option for a lot of cardiology practices. So if you look at the market today, I think about 70% or so of the cardiologists in the U.S. are hospital employed. 30% remainder are obviously independent practices. You know, what we've seen with those independent practices is there's becoming increasingly more opportunities to thrive, you know, in the market. And a lot of that's Things as we're seeing more and more procedures being, you know, shifted into the outpatient setting. You know, cardiology practices that are independent of the systems are starting to benefit from those tailwinds in terms of the site of service. We're also seeing with cardiology practices that there are a number of different ancillary opportunities that these that these larger groups can pursue, whether it's things like you know PET CT, you know, imaging, uh, looking at you know cardiac urgent care, intensive cardiac rehab you know, building out uh, office-based labs or even surgery centers. 
there's a lot of these different ancillary opportunities that are becoming more and more attractive for these independent groups. And I think investors have sort of paid attention to those tailwinds. So they're seeing, you know, the the tailwind and the you know cases shifting to the outpatient setting. They're seeing all the opportunities for ancillary services. And obviously there's a significant addressable market here in terms of the, the healthcare spend going into cardiology. So really all of those factors are starting to you know, generate significant investor interest in the, the cardiology and kind of broader cardiovascular space, which I think is why we're starting to see a lot of activity occurring, you know, particularly over the last you know, two years or so. Yeah, historically uh, for private equity in investing in healthcare provider services, you had kind of three avenues of money. It could be provider services, ancillary services, and facility fees. And historically, in particular, the facility fees, the only people who could kind of capitalize on those were hospitals and health systems. Obviously, heart surgery can't be done at an ASC. And traditionally, very little else could have been done at an uh, ASC. But in 2020, CMS uh, relax some of the rules for those side of service uh, requirements and opened up uh, different uh, locations where those services could be done, which opened up the possibility of replicating the model in uh, that had been employed in other sectors where you acquire the provider services uh, part of it and then layer in either ancillary services or maybe add an ASC and then bring the facility fees under that umbrella. And that all became much more available in 2020 than it had been before, which uh, kind of opened up a little bit of a, a gold rush in pursuing those providers. Uh, Rebecca, uh, kind of adding up those pieces, what has the landscape of deal activity looked like from your perspective? We're definitely seeing an increase in, at least in an excitement in the space. Right now, there are there's still a good amount of industry fragmentation. Most private cardiology groups are made up of one to five providers, and those smaller groups are less likely to have the capital that they need in order to grow organically or recruit younger physicians or even invest in imaging technology or sophisticated EMR systems. So any sort of investment really supports their ability to continue to focus on that patient care and the patient outcomes while capitalizing on all of the reimbursement and add-on opportunities that are available to them. And investors who can provide that capital and aggregate smaller groups into larger platforms can really position them um, for, for future growth. So it's really a beneficial situation for all parties involved. And I think overall, it really creates a good situation for both the patient and the provider. Yeah, I think Jeff, just to further that as well. I mean, I think if it, you know, obviously very early innings in terms of investment in, in cardio, you know, I think what we're seeing in the specialty is that consolidation and investment seems to be moving at a pace that's far exceeding what we've seen in other physician specialties, areas like GI, urology, orthopedics. It kind of took a few years for private equity to start to resonate with a lot of the independent groups. And there's certainly a lot of skepticism in those early days of, you know, some of the first platforms forming. In cardiology, you know, we saw obviously Aries and Webster and a few other large private equity firms close platforms in the space. And I think a lot of the independent practices are paying attention to that and are seeing the benefits of, of, uh, of aligning with an, a management, you know, services organization backed by a large private equity firm. So, the market's certainly moving very quickly, although it's still early innings, and it feels to me like this will be a fairly 
quick wave of consolidation over the next few years of those 30% cardiologists that are sort of independent of the system. Yeah, for, for sure. The kind of independent cardiologist is a small uh, subset. And obviously, uh, the cardiology space is a lot smaller than, say, uh, the obviously, like, say, dental space, which you see your dentist way more than you see your cardiologist. So much bigger uh, industry. Cardiology is much smaller and so it would uh, be a quicker run through consolidation. You mentioned the 30% independent. What's your take on the available market? Uh, obviously, uh, acquiring an independent group is uh, an easy to wrap your head around them as a target. What about groups that are currently housed within uh, a health system? There's ways to kind of structure that from a tax and other perspective to make them a viable target. What's your sense of the openness of the market in kind of pulling physicians out of health systems? Yeah, I think the the platforms are certainly looking at that. The feedback we've heard from talking with various groups is that those deals tend to be fairly labor intensive and obviously require a lot of work kind of, you know, from a legal structuring perspective, as well as, you know, potentially a lot of CapEx up front, you know, if these practices don't own any of their assets, you know, you're effectively pulling those physicians out of the system and you know, potentially needing to to kind of build the clinic from scratch, you know, CapEx, you know, uh, invest in all the CapEx needed in terms of the technology and start to build out those ancillary services from scratch. So they're deals that tend to be a little bit longer, you know, a little bit more labor intensive. But ultimately, I think a lot of the management companies recognize that they're focusing on the independent group primarily for now, but eventually, you know, there's a significant part of the market that's you know, hospital-based that they certainly want to explore partnering with and doing transactions with groups that are maybe hospital-aligned, either employed or through a PSA. That's certainly one avenue that these groups are going to be exploring. And I know there's a couple of those types of deals ongoing right now in the market. And then also potentially just looking at, you know, some of the employed physicians, individuals that maybe want to leave those systems and the management company might have a practice already in that market you know, providing an opportunity for those individuals to leave if, if they want to, you know, practice outside of their non-compete and potentially get some equity within the management company. You know, those models we've seen have worked really well for practices that have explored that. Yeah, for sure. The We call it uh, in the legal arena, maybe you all do as well. We call that an aqua hire where you're not really buying a business, but you're doing almost a mini acquisition for uh, either one or a small group of providers where you have something that's uh, uh, quasi like a purchase price, but is structured more in a compensatory format, but it otherwise looks sort of like a small acquisition. I also agree that acquisitions or hiring a bigger group out of a health system sends you down some really difficult structural pathways of you start to navigate the boundaries of is there personal goodwill with this group of uh, providers that can be sold as a capital asset from a tax perspective, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you start to navigate some pretty intrusive dynamics around uh, non-competes uh, to, to the extent that those survive current FTC rulemaking. All of those dynamics are quite a bit more difficult uh, to, to pull off. But if it's 70% of the market, it would seem that the acquisition and consolidation wave that is kind of uh, storming into cardiology is going to uh, start looking at that 70% uh, bulge bracket as well. Another question that I see a lot in different 
sectors is the idea of bringing together subspecialties that may have historically been in separated practices or all of them kind of working together at a health system. In cardiology, you might see kind of interventional radiologists, uh, vascular surgeon. There's a lot of different subspecialties. How are you seeing that as a business model for consolidation, kind of pulling together these subspecialties that may have not been pulled together before? So I'd say a lot of the groups were looking at tends to lead in with general cardiology and then layer in a more full continuum. There are um, a lot of PE platforms that see the opportunities to bring those subspecialties together into one continuum to be able to provide for all of the patient needs. You have your cardiologist, your interventionalist, the EP physician extenders, maybe vascular surgeons, OBLs, ASCs. If you're able to bring all of those things in-house, it's obviously going to provide for a much better patient experience, but there are challenges there and you need to pay attention to the unique situations for each of the groups. Yeah, and I would add, Jeff, I think, you know, the cardiac surgeons, you know, are still largely hospital employed. We haven't really seen platforms, you know, add a cardiac surgeon practice to their platforms. I think that's probably largely driven by, you know, at this point, you know, the cardiac surgeons are are very much bound to the hospital for all their procedures. And, you know, oftentimes they're not in clinic seeing patients like a general cardiologist is. So, there's still certainly an aspect of, you know, the continuum of care that I think is is still largely hospital-based and will likely stay that way for some period of time. But certainly the the platforms we've talked with are looking at potentially adding, you know, a more surgical-focused component to their businesses, whether it's, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons and, and, other, and uh, other physicians that are operating predominantly in, you know, ASCs and, and OBLs with some hospital work as well they're certainly looking at opportunities to sort of, you know, go down the acuity spectrum and and provide that full continuum of care to Rebecca's point. We talked a little bit about the liberalization of CPT codes that can be performed uh, outside of the the hospital, which brings you to the realm of uh, ASCs that are connected to these cardiology practices. From your perspective in talking with groups that are looking to sell, there seem to be two different models, one where it already exists uh, and there's an, or, an ASC that's already connected to a practice. Uh, then there's also the possibility that it doesn't exist. And that's a, a growth strategy where if you could cobble together enough providers, you could also probably add a surgery center. Uh, how are you seeing that play out in deal dynamics? Is it better to already have a surgery center in place or is the potential for it the actual attractive part? I think it's a combination of um, the opportunities available. Different states, different setups provide for different opportunities. Some of the groups that we've worked with have already had that built out ASC, um, and that's been a real advantage. You need to make sure that you structure the transaction in a way so that it works for all of the parties, but that's what the lawyers are for. Um, And so we usually rely heavily on them to make sure that the structure is compliant with all of the regulatory requirements. Some of the PE groups that we see really focus on that facility play and want to be in those, you know, non-CON states where the ASC has a lot of opportunities. Other models see it as attractive, but isn't a contingent aspect of the of the transaction. Yeah, and I'd say you know we we've seen there's not a ton of 
cardiac ASCs open yet in the country. I think you're starting to see, you know, them pop up in, you know, to Rebecca's point, a lot of those non-CON states, you know, Arizona, Texas, Florida, uh, where there are some practices that have opened them. But, you know, it's still relatively new to the space, you know, and, and I think the model that these investors are employing is certainly going to be market specific. We have seen some platforms are very focused on the ASC opportunity, and therefore you'll probably see them stay within a lot of the southern states and in markets where a surgery center is feasible over the next you know year to 18 months, whereas some of these certificate need states like New York and in Connecticut and otherwise up here in the Northeast, it could take a few years to sort of develop those ASCs and it might take a hospital joint venture to do that. So I think investors are still attracted to those markets and are seeing an ASC, you know, as an opportunity down the road, but are more focused on the other ancillaries that these groups can provide, as well as looking at office-based labs and, and building those out since that's typically a much less stringent process to, to develop. So talking about office-based labs, uh, can you describe what the kind of the value proposition for going down that path is and why that is still kind of an open path versus one that a cardiology practice would have already gone down? What's the value proposition and how can private equity funds uh, additional capital play into that? Yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of states that have a certificate of need for an ASC, OBL might not necessarily have the same restrictions. So New York, for example, I know you can build an, an office-based lab uh, without a certificate of need, but the ASC would be, you know, could be really challenging for cardiology groups. So, you know, in those types of states, an OBL is an opportunity to benefit from some facility fees, albeit not at the same level as an ASC. But it could at least provide an opportunity to monetize um, and, and you know diversify into the facility spectrum for some of these you know cardiology practices. You know, so you'll have some of the interventional physicians doing procedures in the ASC, and then we've also seen cardiology practices actually employ um, vascular surgeons, just given the the overlap in the patient base. And you have vascular surgeons that may be employed by the the OBL. And they're doing procedures, you know, in the OBL as well. So the cardiology practice can kind of drive volume to that OBL, you know, have the vascular surgeon there or multiple vascular surgeons and then have the interventionalists uh, doing procedures in there as well. So just provides an opportunity to capture some of that facility fee, you know, although it's it's not as as, as lucrative as an opportunity and, and certainly not as diverse from a, a procedure base as an ASC. We've talked about some of the tailwinds, some that are general to all providers and um, some specific that uh, apply to cardiology, whether that's kind of liberalizing uh, the side of service rules and other dynamics. What might be some of the headwinds in this sector that you think folks will encounter? I think in terms of headwinds, I mean, I think, you know, we touched on this earlier, but obviously from an investor perspective, especially these large investors that are putting significant dollars into the space, um, I think you know it's going to be they're going to start to run into the number of independent groups that are looking to do private equity are either going to make a decision over the next couple of years to move forward with PE or you know decide to stay independent and sit on the sidelines as this consolidation happens. So from a market perspective to sort of get to the returns that these investors are looking for and get to the size and scale that particularly some of the larger private equity-backed MSOs are looking to get to, they're going to obviously have to, to start to move into some of those hospital-based groups. And I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, that can be a little bit uh, of a challenge from a, um, from a deal structuring perspective. One of the dynamics to uh, explore is 
partially it's uh, historical that uh, these cardiology practices have long-standing, deeply ingrained relationships with the hospital and the health systems. Uh, a lot of that driven by that's where most of the work happened. But for other reasons, how, how should a platform, a private equity-backed platform, think about their relationship with the, the health system or their opportunities for joint ventures, uh, whether it's through an ASC or otherwise? How should they think about the relationship with the health, the local health system? Well, I think there's still going to be services that need to be provided in a hospital setting. And so maintaining that relationship is going to be important. Um, structuring arrangements where services that might have traditionally been in a hospital setting but could be performed in an ASC are going to be, um, I think, one of the items where there are opportunities to have a hybrid model where the physicians or the the private equity groups can um, can partner with the hospitals in order to provide a better coverage service for the patients. Yeah, and I'd say you know we've seen from practices the relationships with health systems in their market are generally going to be positive. However, you know, how ingrained those practices are with the health systems can vary pretty significantly market to market. So we've seen some practices that generate a pretty substantial amount of their revenue tied to directorship, you know, and call pay type positions with the systems. And, you know, they might have a fairly substantial amount of their referral volume coming from the health system as well. So obviously maintaining that healthy relationship with the health system is really critical for that group to continue to grow and and thrive uh, under a, a private equity model. Uh, on the flip side, we've seen some groups that have good relationships with the health systems, but they've been able to develop models where they rely very little on the health system beyond maybe you know some operating room space for them. And you know, groups that have accomplished that generally are groups that are, that are going to have same day patient access, where they're you know they have capacity to provide coverage to patients you know within a, a 24 hour period of when they need to be seen. That can be formalized through a cardiac urgent care, or it could just be informalized through, you know, having capacity within their existing clinics to see those patients. And by doing it that way, they're effectively providing patients an opportunity to go to their practice and be seen by a cardiologist in lieu of potentially going into the ER. So they're sort of disrupting that referral pattern where they're getting more direct access to those patients. And then on top of that, developing really good community relationships with the PCPs and other specialists within their market that are independent of the system. And by structuring it that way and, and kind of building their practice that way, you know, they still have a really good relationship with the health system, but they're not necessarily relying on that system to to grow and survive. You know, they can sort of, they're self-sufficient in the model that they've created, which I think tends to be a really good blueprint for practices you know, to develop into. However, it can be very difficult to sort of transition in that model, depending on how the, the group has been structured over the years. Adding that all up, I do think we are still in the uh, early innings of this consolidation. Uh, even if it's not a huge market, uh, there's going to be quite a bit more activity. And I do think the more interesting kind of future maneuvers are going to be, A, navigating uh, around the segment of the market that is currently employed at, at health systems. Uh, navigating the comp complexities of doing a transaction with those providers, and then also figuring out how to have a beneficial, constructive uh, relationship with the health system going forward. Uh, it'll uh, certainly be interesting to see. I think with that, we'll uh, call this episode to a close. This has been super interesting in 
I really want to thank both of you for joining me. Uh, It's been a ton of fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Banker's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.